0: Hello and welcome to the Monocle Weekly on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. On today's
1: show, we'll be diving into the enduring power of storytelling as we meet mythology expert
0: Dr. Martin Schoen. Then we'll be discussing a remarkable period in Swiss music with the creator of a new compilation of the time, Matthias Orset. And we'll be peeping into
1: the dark corners as we meet author Ben Myers and hear some of his cultural picks for The
0: Cooped Up. That's all coming up and we've more great music for you too right here on the Monocle Weekly on Monocle 24. Well, here we are again, Fernando, and, uh, you know, the world, if it hasn't tilted on its axis, it's certainly a very different place from week to week, um, but there's still a really important role, I think, to be played, uh, you know, in terms of conversations and in terms of finding some cultural Inspiration. Confident that we are going to get the right mix of that on today's uh, program. Oh, I believe so, Tong. And and, and, you
1: know, as you say, the world changed dramatically in a week. And it's interesting to see, you know, our listeners, the Monaco readers, how they're actually getting in touch quite a lot with us as well, because. I, I, I think they kind of need some solace during this period don't you think
0: I do indeed Fernando and can I say it always cheers me up uh, to chat with you of a Sunday lunchtime uh, are you keeping yourself uh, busy how, how do you what's the Fernando tips for avoiding a bit of, of cabin fever because you know it is difficult when you're mainly confined to your to your to your dorm in effect <laughs> how are you passing the time Well I, I have to say one thing that
1: I don't like tones to stay still so I always find something to do in the house organize you know the bookshelf and again, you know me, right? We we need some good cultural things to watch. In fact, I have a great recommendation. I just saw it last night. And again, this is an example of how the you know the world of culture is doing things. I saw the film The Truth uh, with Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve. I mean it was supposed to be in the cinemas, but they made it available uh, on Curzon Home Cinema. What a delight to see Catherine Deneuve. And she's playing, you know, a famous actress in the film. So it's quite matter as well. And it's the first time she she starred with Juliette Binoche. So that's kind of a, a French
0: classic already, if I may say
1: two absolute
0: titans of French cinema on the silver screen. And it's interesting, Fernando, you talk there about great storytelling on the screen and we're going to kick off with a bit of an exploration of storytelling on this very programme. You're listening to the Monocle Weekly here on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards, and with Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Dr. Martin Shaw, self-proclaimed mythologist, has been studying the ways people tell stories for most of his life. His interest in storytelling extends to the pedagogical. He set up the Oral Tradition and Mythic Life courses at Harvard University over in the US. He's also the author of
1: a number of award-winning books on the subject. His latest is Courting the Wild Twin. He sat down to discuss it with Monaco's Louis Harnett O'Mara and explain why we continue to tell stories to one another.
2: Yeah, first of all, I just wanted to ask you, Where do fairy tales come from? What are they and where do they come from? And how are they different to just ordinary stories?
3: I think a difference between fairy tales or folk tales and the kind of novels that we tend to read and enjoy these days is on a very basic level, fairy tales are older. Also, you find that fairy tales uh, usually have their roots in an oral tradition rather than a literary tradition. So it might only be the last few hundred years that a story that is maybe a thousand years old has actually been collected by, say, the Grimm's, then written down and then turned into a a story that we can read. One of the things that I think is um, good to know about fairy tales is that rather than us assuming that they are primarily for the education of kids or the enjoyment of kids, Really, before they started to be um, collected and archived, they were stories for the whole family. Everybody understood that there was a wisdom in fairy tales that grew as you grew. So, impacted in the images of a story like, you know, The Six Swans or um, Tatterhood, there's all kinds of information about. Number one, how humans live and get through all the struggles and travails we go through. And number two, there's this interesting kind of ecological emphasis uh, that we can relate to the wider world in a magical as well as practical way. You know, you get brothers that turn into swans, for example, or a woman that is uh, secretly a fox. Uh, that's hugely interesting to kids it's exciting to us when we're young because I mean I don't know what it was like for you but when I was a kid it was hard for me to stay in the shape of a little boy for more than about 10 minutes I was always sort of contorting and twisting into different shapes and different imaginings so fairy tales made a lot of sense to me but just to recap stories like the fairy tale tradition are older and grounded in oral rather than literary tradition
2: Sure. So to take something that we all kind of know, for instance, how old is Little Red Riding Hood and what, what does that tell us about, about our culture?
3: Well, Little Red Riding Hood, I can't say exactly how old it is, but I would imagine it's it's old. Could that be there... hundreds
2: or thousands of years?
3: Uh, no, I wouldn't say thousands, that's too big, a, too big a leap for me, but it's certainly hundreds of years old. Well, let's think about Red Riding Hood. You've got Fear of the Wolf, so we know this is a story of the village, first of all. You get in a lot of stories um, a real anxiety and a genuine anxiety about going into the forest outside of the village and getting consumed either by an animal or a spirit. So that tells us, for a start, that this story is rooted long enough ago that that was a real possibility, that you could actually run into you know, a bear or a wolf, certainly in Eastern Europe, and get yourself in a lot of trouble. So there is a relationship in fairy tales between us and what you could call the other, the thing that we're unfamiliar with but lurks near the village. There are all sorts of sexual implications to that story, of course, about Red Riding Hood herself, the wisdom of a grandmother, even the colors Here's a really interesting thing that you get in Red Riding Hood, but you get it in many fairy tales, is there's often this particular organization of colors, red, black, and white, the red, the black, and the white. Uh, And you think of something like Snow White, the red of the lip, the white of the skin, the black of the hair. Immediately, these charged colors uh, seem to be telling us something. It's almost like a kind of alchemy. And what's interesting is um, a few years ago, uh, well, more than a few now, back in the 20th century, there was an anthropologist called Victor Turner who spent a lot of time in Africa. And he was working with a tribe called the Gisu. And a lot of his work was recognizing the significance of these three colors in initiatory practice in tribal Africa, but we see them showing up In fairy tales as well. So, if you have the eye to see it or the ear to hear it, you can hear lots of information in these fairy tales about medieval alchemy, about initiatory stages of one's life, uh, and the relationship between people of a settlement or a settled way of living, a seeded living, and you know the power of the forest and the power of the nomad so in a three in a three page story if you can if you can decipher it there's an awful lot going on mm.
2: so you're kind of saying there's there are basic elements which form the foundations of cultures from tribes in africa to fairy tales that spawn in middle europe
3: yes it is yeah that's what i'm saying
2: this fairy tale particularly, you've taken two fairy tales in this book that's uh, that's due to be published, Courting the Wild Twin, and yeah. they both deal with a couple who are a king and a queen who yeah. are seeking to have a child and are advised on how to go about having a child, as, as they can't yeah. through normal means, and mm. they birth two children, one of which is a wild twin, which is in the title. Could you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about that, please?
3: I could. First thing that I think is really interesting is fairy tales communicate things in a kind of shorthand. So in two or three sentences, the story will usually tell you where the problem is. And the problem in both of these stories, uh, the Lindworm and Tatterhood, is that the king and queen are kind and gracious to all of their citizens. They're good to everybody, but they cannot conceive a child. Now, in fairy tales speak, what that means is the center of the kingdom is no longer fertile. It's no longer fertile. it's it's stuck. So first of it was like, wow, you can even get stuck in politeness. You can get stuck in helping everybody else by yourself. So one of the stories deals with keeping the twin around and what happens when the wild twin, The irascible, mischievous, storytelling, magical twin is allowed to live within the kingdom, within the castle, within the community, and what flourishes from that. Most of us did not have that. The second story, the lindworm, is more akin to most of our lives, where actually on the night one baby's born and all is well, but just before it came out, this little black snake came out uh, from the queen, and the midwife throws it out of the window. And for 20 years, we hear nothing about what happened to the snake. We all forget about the snake. But actually, once the other twin, oblivious to the fact that he's a twin, goes out and tries to marry, the first thing he finds on his way is he's blocked by a huge black serpent who says, older brothers marry first. And the rest of the story is how do you court, not trap, not sedate, not eviscerate your wild twin, but call it back into your life? Because actually that twin and the characteristics of that twin have an enormous amount of energy, a lot of information for us. As I'm saying this to you, you can probably imagine what uh, a psychologist could do with a story like this, or a Jungian analyst could do with a story like this. They would say, well, as we grow, we tend to send into exile the parts of ourselves that society at large doesn't approve of. Our spontaneity as a child, our glee, our troublemaking. And so by the time we're about 20, we are a perfectly formed individual. We just don't have any energy because the energy got bit by bit Sent away. My great mentor for this book and uh, for these two fairy tales is an American poet called Robert Bly. And Bly was a mentor and a friend to me for some time. And it was Robert that really brought these kind of stories to my attention. And the book is actually dedicated to him. And so the stories are popular as. Wonderful imagistic tapestries of how to become wise as you grow. However, I'm very careful as a storyteller that you don't put too much of that weight on a story. At some point, you've just got to let the story tell itself. You can't pick it to pieces with analysis. So, what courting the wild twin is trying to do is that delicate balancing out where you just let the story breathe, you just let the story tell itself, but then Having told those stories as I have for the last um last certainly the last 10 to 15 years all over the world, I just add whatever insights or thoughts I have from the beginning of the story to the end.
2: And tell me, where did you find this story? Because it's not one I've read before.
3: No, they're not massively well known. They are fairy tales. So you can come across them in books of European fairy tales. They're fairly common. There's a story called The Lindworm, one of the two that I tell. You can find that in northern England, as well as Scandinavia or Eastern Europe. So the stories move about. One of the things that I think is great about fairy tales is that no one is going to get hot under the collar about cultural appropriation. There isn't a village in Yorkshire who's going to send you a furious email saying, why are you telling our story of the Lindworm? In other words, fairy tales belong to, it's a rather poetic term, but I think it's appropriate, a commons of the imagination. Anybody, whether you are Choctaw, Seneca, or you're from Birmingham, can stand up and tell one of these stories knowing that fairy tales belong to all of us. They are not the religious stories of a particular place. So you can tell already if a story is being told in say five or six different countries, then it's not rooted in a very specific geography. It's not about a particular set of woods or a particular bend in the river, but it's actually a story sort of designed to travel. And at this point in um, human culture, where so many of us are on the move, I'm not surprised that stories like that are having the impact that they have because actually there's a huge revival in fairy tales and storytelling. A lot of people are very interested in it because I think it fits the sort of migration patterns of uh, our lives.
2: And Angela Carter called what you call the, uh, the imaginative commons. She called it the, uh, the public unconscious or, or the collective unconscious, she called it. So I suppose yeah. fairy tales function as symptoms, according to her, of a, um, of a public uh, psychology. And, and they are the expressions of things that we don't necessarily address head on, but we would like to tell stories around.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's, that's a very wise thing. It's one of many wise things that she said. I think of fairy tales as a kind of public dreaming. You know how every night we go to sleep and we have our own very personalised dreams. I see these stories as a moment where we as a small group of people are dreaming together because there are images from it, whether you want to call it the subconscious or the other world, which I actually prefer, that we all seem to recognize. And it is a way where we work out deep issues without always having to refer to them directly. One of the things that I come across quite often is people that have been burnt out by, say, ecological activism. And one of the messages from myth is if you keep staring into hell, you eventually get incinerated. In Greek myths, if you're encountering something that is very dangerous, if you approach it head on, it'll blast you to pieces. But if you look at its reflection on a shield, then you may be able to interact with it and defeat it. And for me, these stories, especially the darker ones, the ones concerning, say, Baba Yaga and the underworld, that is a way of looking at a very deep issue through the artistry of gazing at it from another angle.
0: That was Dr Martin Shaw talking to Monocle's Louis Harnett O'Mara and Courting the Wild Twin is out now.
1: So, in just a moment, we'll be hearing from Matthias Orsat, a compiler of a new collection of experimental music from Switzerland. But first, why don't we take some for a spin? Let's do exactly that, Fernando. What have you got for me? We have the Swiss electro disco of Carol Rich with Computed Love.
0: Wow, that was Carol Rich with Computed Love. Fernando, I can see you were loving that one.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I, j- just to say that word Swiss electro disco make me so happy.
0: <laughs> That's what we need <laughs> at times like these. Well, we'll be hearing more about that and other experiments in music right after this. You're with the Monocle Weekly on Monocle 24. You are with the Monocle Weekly, Fernando and Tom Edwards in the chairs today. Now, in the 80s and early 90s, bold improvisation in studios from Geneva to St. Gallen helped to create a fantastic scene in Switzerland of left-field synth-pop mixed with exotic jazz.
1: A new compilation showcases the best artists in the period. Intenta, experimental and electronic music from Switzerland, 1981-93, is a delightful compilation. I spoke to one of the men who put the compilation together, Matthias Orsat.
4: I started to work on this project with someone called Maxi Fischer, we are two in this uh, wonderful story. And in fact, we have a label called uh, Décalé, where we are doing some um, reissues, mostly on French-speaking elements. And at some point, uh, as I'm living in Lausanne, we thought about working on the the compilation toward French-speaking Swiss music and blending it with other elements from France or, or Belgium. And so we started to dig, uh, I think was three years ago, to dig a bit about Swiss music. And uh, very fast we realized that Swiss music was uh, huge in this period, and not only on the French-speaking part, that was also the beyond the, the Roche-Tigraben, a lot of things to show to the world. So that's why we, we decided to, to focus only on Switzerland three years ago.
1: And Matthias, I mean, Switzerland, it's an interesting country. You know, there's, you know, There's French, uh, German-speaking, Italian-speaking, Romanish as well. Was this kind of community during this period, they're all kind of part of a movement or everybody was kind of doing their own thing?
4: I think it's even not about the language. I think everybody at this time was in that particular type of music, which is more around experimental and and electronic music. I think most of the the artists were doing their things on their own. At this time, what was huge was the punk scene. And, and the punk scene, you can go to a concert and meet your relatives, people that are doing the same music as you. While when you're doing experimental music at this time, first it's difficult to get some gears. So, you know, it's like tough. You don't have a lot of people supporting you in this. In this, um, in the, in this. And then you don't have any concert about it. It's pretty isolated. So there was no scene and there were no relation to geography.
1: And Switzerland is a big fan, you know, of of, of electronic music. You guys have a very strong, uh, well, I say you guys, I mean the Swiss, they have a strong techno culture. You know, I know the band Yellow, for example, is quite famous around the world. Do you think the Swiss are quite good when it comes to electronic music in a way still today? They punch above their weight when it comes to that.
4: Yeah, I think it's it's very active for for a long time. I think the period where, where we decided to put the focus on is a, a period of transition where it was really a, about getting into, from life to, to more club culture scenes. Since then it hasn't uh, uh, stopped to, to improve in diverse direction. You, you have a, a lot of, uh, of different type of music, different type of labels, even today, that are very active in all over the country. And we recently and sadly uh, read an, uh, an interview from Swiss artists saying that the scene is is dying. Well, it's not the case at all. I mean, there are a lot of productions, there are a lot of parties as well. People are represented all over Switzerland. um, And I'm super happy to be, not necessarily as a Swiss, but as a a label boss, let's say, uh, part of this story.
1: What is Intenta, by the way?
4: We wanted to have a, a, a name that fits into all Swiss languages. Intenta comes from Latin, So it fits. And there are a lot of definitions behind it, but one is the intention. I was saying that, you know, people were a bit isolated. The artists were a bit isolated, but at the same time, we try also to to, to show that even without being too much in relationship, there is not not an agreement, but somehow homogeneity in the music that, you know, you, you can feel that it was, Around the same period, and, and that there is a, a taste that is a bit, you can you can feel a bit uh, a similar similarities in the in this compilation, and that's that's why we call it intenta, because I think the, the intention and the, there was somehow an, a, an hidden agreement between the artists. This is the first the first definition, the intention as well that was behind uh, this compilation is also super strong because in fact we met almost all the artists that are that have been compiled everybody was super super happy and involved in the creation of this compilation so that's also we thought about you know it's not only about a name doesn't only represent the music but also how it has been done you know i think the naming process is really like some at some point you have the wow effect and say okay it's this
1: and i was going to ask matthias as well i have two favorite songs I mean of course the whole compilation is very nice but I really love Carol Rich's Computed Love and Jean-Pierre uh, who's there with Chinatown I think they're very good especially Carol Rich I think you know I think if she releases this today it could be a hit in a way uh, have, have you, have you yeah. met then? How, how are they as, as artists
4: yeah so we, uh, we both met them in Lausanne because they are, they, are, they are not so far from there. It's interesting you pick you those two artists because both of them have done a lot of music, but I think in those respective styles, it's the only music like that they did. Jean-Pierre Husser is, is super famous for, for chanson, uh, classic music, French music. French and Swiss music, of course, but he was super, super strong in uh, in France. That's why that's why I'm saying this. And Carol Rich is from Fribourg, which is uh, a bit above uh, uh, above Lausanne, and he also got much more into classic Swiss music. And they are both like super happy and at the same time super surprised that we picked those uh, two tracks for the compilation.
1: And some of them have quite an exotic sound. For example, I think a uh, Fize with Kulu Hata Mamnua. Feels very foreign as well. I think that's another trend that they had. For example, bells of Kyoto with Swiss Air as well, right? This kind of look yeah. to the world.
4: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's also the, the, how Switzerland is. You know, I've, I've, I mean, I'm French, but I'm, li- I'm living in Switzerland for six years, and I think Switzerland is super open to the world. And Fize is, a, is a, an incredible artist. We we're gonna work with after this release because he has a lot of materials and he has been always interested in the Middle East culture and, and sounds. And we thought, well, you know, it's, it's, it's coming from Switzerland and, and, and it has this exotic, as you said, and it's also even more interesting, you know, to, to share this to, to the world.
1: And Matthias, if we want to end this interview with a song from the compilation, your choice, which one, which one shall we end this? So we're going to play a clip of it as well at the end for our listeners.
4: I don't have any pre person. I love all of them. Then that's the chance to be uh, uh, directing the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> this compilation. But I, I think one of the most interesting for us, because the story is super nice, is uh, Peter Philippe Weiss. The track is called Subway. It's very personal first because it has uh, uh, been made in 1999, my date of birth. And in Paris, and I'm from Paris uh, at the beginning. But that's, that's uh, not really interesting information. What is very interesting is that when we contacted Peter Philippe Weiss, he told us, I'm super happy and, I'm, and I'm really, um, I would really like to have it in the compilation. But I have some fear that is really depressing me since '89 is the fact that the original version and the instrumental version are having elements that are super nice both. And what I really would like to do for this uh, compilation is to combine both versions so I can live happy (laughs) with the big version. So he went back to the studio and he did this special Intenta version for us, which is uh, the only a bit, um, let's say remix, but made by the creator, so it's pretty nice. And yeah, I think it's super nice and it's super weird at the same time. A bit of synth pop, a bit of experimental. There are some homeless people from Paris that you recorded in the subway that are having some song at the beginning and some talks and some other elements. So yeah, it's a pretty funny one, but I think it's a, it's a super nice song.
1: Good choice. Thank you so much, Mathias. Merci. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Matthias Orsett. Intenta, experimental and electronic music from Switzerland, 1981 to 93, is
0: released by Bongo Joe and is out now. You're with The Weekly, uh, Fernando. Music, great music we've had on the show already, but I am hungry for more. Have you got another track for me up your sleeve? We do. There's a lot of new tracks coming out,
1: Tom, but this one is great. It's a bit 80s fantasia. It's the brand new track by Dua Lipa, Break My Heart.
0: That was Break My Heart from Dua Lipa. Pretty 80s, Fernando. I know that's a direction we're both happy to travel in. I liked that one. Uh, This is the Monocle Weekly. You're with the Monaco Weekly on Monaco 24. Fernando Augusto Pacheco and me, Tom Edwards, in the chairs. Now, it's hard to ignore the impact of coronavirus across almost every industry, but here on the Weekly, at least, we hope to provide you with some escapism and plenty of cultural nourishment. Ben Myers is a writer based in the north of England. He's found widespread acclaim for his novels, which include The Gallows Pole* and, most recently, The Offing.
1: He's also something of a drama aficionado and recently took to Twitter to publish a guide to overlooked and forgotten thrillers freely available online. Monaco's Augustine Macellari caught up with Ben down the line to learn more about his cultural picks. Ben has a taste for the macabre, so they're not for everyone, but he started by explaining to Augustine why his latest book, The Offing, is quite the opposite.
5: When I'm working on a book, it's hard to ignore entirely the the sort of current climate at any given time. And I think it does seep through, but not even in a way that I'm necessarily conscious or aware of at the time of writing. It's often only afterwards maybe years later or when the book is out that I realize why I wrote the thing that I did. So uh, a few years ago I did a a sort of crime noir novel called Turning Blue which started off as one thing but halfway through writing it the um, Jimmy Savile story broke in the news and and it kind of was running as a tangent to the story that I was writing which was about sort of morality and corruption and darkness in the north of England and Jimmy Savile had a lot of ties to the area in which I live, West Yorkshire. So I ended up, a lot of that went into the novel I was writing at the time. I can look back at things I've written and I can see why I wrote what I did. So about 10 years ago, I I was sort of struggling really to get published. And the Conservatives had just come into power and I had no money. And I tried to sign on for the first time in my life, aged about 34 and was basically laughed out of the job centre, and I realised, you know, there's, there's no help for, for people like me who, who needed a bit of, to supplement their income at the time. So the books that I wrote then are very angry and I can see it was against the, back, the sort of general backdrop of austerity kicking in. But as regards The Offing, that was a novel that I consciously sat down to write as a kind of reaction against my previous novels. I was getting asked a lot to go and appear at festivals and on panels to discuss sort of Northern Gothic or sort of similar subjects. And I realized, you know, there's every person and every writer has different sides to their character. And I wanted to kind of show that um, it's not all nihilistic and bleak and violent. And I wanted to write something that was sunny in tone because that's what I felt like I needed to pursue at the time. And also, just as I was starting to write the offing, the whole EU referendum happened. And while the offing isn't a political book, it was written amongst the noise of Britain becoming increasingly divided and a lot of shouting on both sides, a lot of horrible nationalism, racism, xenophobia. So if the offing has one core message, it's it's something about, you know... uh, Looking beyond the boundaries and the things that divide us, and sort of acknowledging that humans are fairly similar the world over, in an indulgent way, I wrote the book really just for my own sanity and self preservation. I think when you're writing a book and you're spending a year or two occupying that world, you've got to make sure you, you're prepared, sort of, or you're, you're mentally fortified to be able to inhabit that world.
6: There is something that's sort of attractive about that kind of the more nihilistic, the darker sort of things in life that again, the shadowy corners to people of a certain personality type on your indirect advice. I recently read happy like murderers by Gordon Burns, which is a uniquely grim, but also really excellent piece of long form journalism, I suppose. And, you know, reading around that Gordon burn himself had terrible nightmares while he was immersed in, Researching this book, which goes into great detail on the crimes of Fred and Rose West, you don't hear that much about the kind of psychic fallout from immersion in, in those
4: worlds.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what you call psychic fallout, um, and I've got some insights actually into Happy Light Murderers because, the, well, my past few novels have been partly written at a house that belonged to Gordon Byrne, and I'm, I'm friends with his widow, Carol. This sort of stems back to, I, I won the, the first Gordon Byrne Prize in 2013 for a novel, and part of the prize was getting to stay in a cottage that belongs to the Gordon Byrne Trust, which was a, a dream for me, because I've been a fan of his writing since I was a teenager, really. And I'm from the same neck of the woods as Gordon was, but I, I never actually knew him, but I've spoken to his wife a lot and I've ended up working at his desk and sleeping in his bed, which is a very Gordon Byrne type thing to do. And um, yeah, Carol has told me the sort of, the toll it took on him riding Happy Like Murderers, which was a project that he, he was approached about and signed up for, but it was before the trial of Fred and Rose West. So the story was breaking in the newspapers at the time about this horrible couple and he said, "Yeah, I'll I'll do it. I'll write the book." And then he went along to the trial and realised kind of what he'd got himself in for when he heard the true horror of the things they did. And at that point, I think he sort of had a bit of I don't know panic or doubt when he realised that he was going to have to explore this world, which was far murkier than he'd initially realised. And as you said, yeah, he would wake up having nightmares, cold sweats. I think. Things are always more horrific to
6: write about when they're true, actually. There's been a bit of a kind of handle with care warning around Twitter, I think, over the last few years. And remains to be seen if it shrugs that off while everyone's cooped up inside and maybe it gets a bit more civil again. But you came up with this really great thread, a really useful resource, actually, for anyone who is looking for something to watch Uh, which I think a lot of people will be. You've got all of these different, a lot of BBC dramas, a lot of old Channel 4 crime dramas, all of which are archived on YouTube. And I was kind of thinking about both the aesthetics of these things and, and the way that they tell stories. I mean, the first thing to note, I guess, is that the BBC particularly has maybe become more conservative in its output over the years for various kind of political and cultural reasons and that you know a lot of these things from the 80s these kind of kitchen sink dramas or these pot boilers come from a time when broadcast was able to take bigger risks with its content but I wondered you know looking at all of these what the sort of nostalgic quality of them means to you because I suspect that you probably might bristle at, at the idea of an attachment to them being rooted in nostalgia but what's, what's their kind of pastness? What does that quality kind of do for you? I'm
5: not um, entirely against nostalgia per se uh, as someone who listens to a lot of old music and old films. But, um, well, I was born in 1976, so that means that I sort of had my childhood in the 80s and came of age in the 90s. And the more that time passes, the more I'm sort of continually fascinated with exploring the England that I came from, you know, the the place that spawned me. I don't just, just mean geographically, but in terms of the kind of, how society was at the time, and how much it's changed. So yeah, I watch a lot of um, a lot of dramas from the 70s and 80s to kind of examine England as it was. So I watch a lot of plays and a lot of um, you know people like Nigel Neal, Alan Clark, BBC Player for Today's, through to people like you know Ken Loach and Shane Meadows, who I'm a, a big fan of. And I've particularly been watching a lot recently, actually, during the, the virus lockdown. I decided to share a, a, kind of my findings on on YouTube, uh, on Twitter, sorry, so that people can link to it and watch all this sort of archive of stuff that's free on YouTube. And Sort of having this deep dive into this this culture, the main thing I've learned is, and I knew this already, but how awful Britain was in the nineteen (laughs) seventies. And if there's any if there's anyone is nostalgic for the sixties and seventies, you know, perhaps because of Brexit, or they want to hark back to an earlier time, then I think they're sadly deluded. Britain in the seventies, in some of these dramas, was very edgy gritty sort of concrete covered it was a place that I can recognize residually from being a child the 70s sort of bled into my early years so there is a there is an element of nostalgia in watching this stuff in terms of I can the tone and the feel of a lot of these dramas I got quite into a series called villains which came out in 1972 which is about this sort of criminal underworld in London. And it was, I think it was 13 episodes. So it's about 13 hours long, which is a massive commitment for a TV broadcaster to commission, really. And each episode was about a different criminal involved in this sort of um, armed robbery that goes wrong. But as much interest to me is the backdrop and the setting and almost the politics of the time and the aesthetics of the time. It's a very kind of brutish, heart-bitten series, and around about the same time, of course, were the ghost stories for Christmas, M. R. James's adaptations for the BBC, which at the time were nostalgic for an earlier age of M. R. James, and within his stories, there's a sort of nostalgia for an early era that he was writing about. But there's a coldness to a lot of it, and there's a there's a fear of the unknown. Some of it is supernatural, but it's still kind of rooted in this cold 1970s England,
0: which I find fascinating. Thanks to Ben Myers, speaking to Monocle's own Augustin Machilari, and The Offing is out now. Do head online to check out some more of Ben's cultural picks. This is the Monocle Weekly on Monocle 24. (laughs) Well, there you have it, Fernando. Uh, We set out at the top of the hour to provide some cultural nourishment for people, a bit of uh, audio sunshine, and we did very specifically target uh, some great music. And I'm going to say mission accomplished.
1: I loved it. I loved the mix of the show, And I I hope now you're going to listen over the weekend to some Swiss experimental music as well.
0: I was about to say, I'm going to sashay back home up to Walthamstow with a spring in my step and a big old synthy swiss disco soundtrack in my ears so Jobs are good and I'm ready to go. I'm primed for the week ahead.
1: That's amazing. Well, Tom, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking to you.
0: And to you, Fernando, let's thank the people that made the program. Uh, this edition 561 of the Monaco Weekly was produced by Augustin Machillari. Our studio managers were Nora Hull and Maylee Evans. And we'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Tom Edwards. And from me, Fernando
1: Augusto Pacheco. Goodbye.